0: The sermon text for today is found in Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 706. Listen as I read God's word. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury." So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you this morning, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, In our household this week, uh, term one of the school year for our kids ended. And of course, what that means is that there is a end of term celebration. And what end of term celebration with children doesn't involve cake? So we made a cake, and you might not know this about me, but I am the cake decorator in our family. Um... So, when our children were asked what they wanted on this cake, because, I, you know, they asked me to make, you know, certain shapes or pictures, whatever, uh, what they asked me for was Mona Lisa, <laughs> because they've been learning about Da Vinci in this term, and so they're like, you should do the Mona Lisa, and I'm like, <laughs> well, uh, they asked, and I delivered, so <laughs> Uh, You may laugh, but I'm kind of proud of this, actually. (laughs) Uh, On a side note, uh, business is now open. So if you have weddings or (laughs) birthdays that you want uh, Mona Lisa cake for, I can make these kind of things. Just kidding. Don't ask me to decorate a cake for your birthday. (laughs) Uh, It's funny when I do it when no one's going to see it, except when I show you. But um, Anyhow, in all seriousness, uh, we have been in the midst of a message series thinking about the subject of politics. And this morning is the last Sunday of that series. Uh, I was totally expecting like way more cheering and like amens from y'all, but that's good. <laughs> Today is the last day of this sermon series, and during these last number of weeks, what we have been uh, saying is that it matters not only where we end up in life, it matters what? How we get there, Right. Uh, It matters who we vote for, it matters what policies we support, and as followers of Jesus, it matters as much, if not more, what kind of people we are in the process. So what we've been setting out to do uh, in this series is, you know, our goal for this is not to tell you, here's who you need to vote for. Our goal is not to tell you here's exactly what you must think on these certain number of you know, issues or whatever. Uh, rather, our goal is uh, simply to zero in and to think together about what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to engage the realm of politics. What kind of people do we need to be if we're going to do that well and if we're going to maintain having a uh, healthy uh, public witness? where we get to uh, be representatives of Jesus to those in our spheres of influence in the political realm. And so we've been looking at these four virtues, and I'll give a little bit of a quiz to see how many of you remember them. So uh, shout out any of you who remember what any of those virtues are. Love, Love. okay, that's one. Presence, Humility. humility, extra credit for anyone who knows today who hasn't even heard the message yet. Courage, okay, great. I'll decorate a cake for free for you, Tyler. Uh, this morning we're thinking about the subject of courage, and as we uh, come to this passage, what I want to do is uh, just bow for a moment of prayer. So would you join me? God, thank you for the example that we see in Esther's life of what it looks like to be a person of courage. We ask that as we look at her life and her example, and as we think about what it means for us to live as people of courage, that you would uh, do your work inside of us. We ask that you would strengthen us and that you would deepen our faith, that you would deepen our convictions, and that you would help us learn what it means to live as people of courage. God, give each of us what we need here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the series on politics has been in the works for a while now, and during the original sort of planning phases of this, I knew I wanted to come to the book of Esther, and then as I was crafting the outline for this morning, and as I was thinking about, like, how do you, how do you communicate this, actually, I realized that I made, like, a really massive mistake. Uh, not going to the book of Esther, but the mistake I made is as I started, you know, like, looking more into, okay, how do you, how do you communicate this? I'm like... Esther is 10 chapters long, and it's like one story. So I'm sitting here saying to myself, how in the world can I teach on Esther's story without putting all the pieces of the story together? And how can I do that in less than 30 minutes? And faced with the impossibility of that task, what I decided is that we're going to watch a video first this morning. (laughs) Uh, We're going to watch a Bible Project video. If you don't know about Bible Project, they're awesome. Uh, They make Bible resources, and they have all sorts of different videos that are explainer videos and that trace different themes throughout the Bible. And they also have a whole series where they just do overviews of every single book of the Bible. And so you can go to their website, you can go on their YouTube page, and you can find all of these. But I I thought, you know, before we... Uh, look at this passage specifically and think, you, think about this. I think that knowing the arc of the story of the book of Esther and seeing the whole thing at the outset is going to help us. It's going to give us the freedom to zoom in on one thing without feeling like we have to say all of the other stuff about the book. Okay? So that's why we're going to do it. The video is about nine minutes long. It's awesome. It's totally worth it. There's visuals. There's pictures. It's super helpful. So I'm going to go ahead and play the video. And then once that's done, I'm going to come back up and we are going to get into the message this morning.
2: The book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity. And there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals. And it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquets feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast he's really drunk and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses. And so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it the God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which, of course, fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice— die is called Pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But Approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night the king he can't sleep and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life he had totally forgotten so in the morning Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life so now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse telling everyone to praise him now this moment in the story it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all she's Jewish, and second that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her, and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews, so the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai establish by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim. ...to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue... ...as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom... ...and we are told now with his royal greatness and splendor... ...as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal... ...but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example, as if it endorses all of their behavior, but they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence, even when we can't see it working, and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about.
1: Uh, you can see why I showed the video. <laughs> All right? Not a chance I could have said that half as articulate in twice as amount of time. Um, so let's uh, spend a little bit of time looking at this passage here today. And <clears throat> the main thing we're going to see is a picture of Esther's example of courage. As you heard them say, she's not like this stunning, like, beautiful moral example in all these ways. But there are aspects of her life that are uh, an example that we can look at and learn from. And so we're going to see her example of courage. And so we were going to sort of structure our time this morning is we're going to look at two factors that reveal just how courageous her actions were. And then we're going to think about what it looks like for us to uh, follow her example of courage in the realm of politics. So the first factor that reveals how courageous Esther's actions were is Xerxes' personal character, or lack thereof. I suppose is one way you could say it. The kind of person that Xerxes was made Esther's actions uh, really courageous. So, what kind of uh, what do we know about what do we know about this king Xerxes? You heard some of it in the video, uh, but here's what we know about King Xerxes: that he uh, he drinks and makes impulsive decisions. Sometimes on separate occasions, sometimes together, which is really dangerous, but this is one of the things that we see about him as this king of Persia, is that he drinks and makes impulsive decisions. The opening chapter of the book tells a story about this 180-day-long party, six months of partying and feasting and celebration. And as if six months wasn't enough, there's like an after party that's only seven days, like longer than I've ever partied or celebrated anything in my life, right? And so uh, it's this party that's, you know, these like select group of people that are invited to this. These are the most important people. And listen to what we read about this after party. In chapter one, verse eight, it says, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wanted. So this is a seven-day-long party where everyone is trashed the entire time. Like, the point of this is to hang out and to celebrate and to drink and to drink to excess. And so we know that all of the guests were drunk for at least most of the party, and... Um, we also know that King Xerxes himself was intoxicated, and while he was intoxicated, he made one of these impulsive decisions. He says, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea if I, if I paraded my wife in front of all these dinner guests so that I could show just how important I am, so I could show just how you know, successful I am and how beautiful my wife is. And so he calls to have his queen, Vashti, brought in so that people could look upon her physical beauty and, and just stand in awe of her. And she wants, you know, rightly so, wants nothing to do with this, right? She's like, I'm not an object for your dinner guest to look at, you know, like a piece of meat being held out in front of some dogs, right? Like, I'm not participating in this. And because she chose to uh, say, no, I'm not coming to your party. I'm not going to, you know, parade myself in front of your dinner guests. He, in this, you know, drunken rage, decided to depose her meaning he stripped her of her rights and her, you know, status as queen, and then began the search process to find a different queen. But this is not the only time that he made an impulsive decision. Uh, We read in chapter 3, which you actually heard read a few moments ago, about how there is this man, Haman, who's got this conflict with a man, Mordecai, who's Jewish, and because Mordecai has, you know, supposedly done him wrong, he's like, you know what would be a good idea is if we just killed all the Jews right? It's not, I can't just like get revenge against this guy. It has to be against the entire Jewish population throughout the entire like empire of Persia. And so what he does is he goes to King Xerxes and he says to him, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other peoples. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a a decree be issued to destroy them. So notice how in, in in this conversation, at least the way this is presented, he doesn't even name the people that he wants to kill. He just says like, there's some people out there who are doing some things that you might not like. How about we kill all of them? And Xerxes is like, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to commission you to write this decree to go, like, have all these people killed. And then after they, like, just casually sit down and plot genocide, what do they do? (laughs) They sit down to get drunk. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. (laughs) So this is what we know about King Xerxes. He drinks and makes impulsive decisions. This is the kind of person he was. Esther knew that this was the kind of person he was. She knew that Haman was the kind of person that he surrounded himself with. She knew that this is the kind of counsel he takes. She knew that Xerxes is volatile and impulsive and he has a drinking problem and oh, also he has completely unchecked power. This is the kind of person that he is. And his volatility and his lack of personal character is one of the factors that make her actions so courageous. The second factor is Persia's political customs. Okay, so there's Xerxes' personal character and Persia's political customs. In chapter 4, Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, gets word that there's this plot to kill all of the Jews, right? There's an edict that went out, and they translated it into all the languages of the peoples, and they posted it around the city, and they said, hey everyone, get ready for this uh, day of killing that's coming. And so, Uh, Mordecai then goes to Esther and says, okay, you got to go to the king and you have to try and do something about this. You've got to try and stop this plan. So that's what uh, he tells her. And we read her response in chapter four, verse 11, where she responds to him and says, all the king's officials and peoples of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So according to Persian custom, you could not approach the king without first being summoned by him. So think of it in in, uh, similar terms to like the Supreme Court, right? Uh, People appeal to the Supreme Court for certain cases, but the court decides what things they're going to hear and what things they're not going to hear. So you can't just like waltz in the Supreme Court and be like, hey, I got something that I want you guys to, you know, think about. You have to be summoned uh, to bring your case before the Supreme Court. And in the same way, you couldn't just walk into Haman's, uh, Xerxes' presence rather, and just sort of, you know, come into him in this way. Uh, So if you came into the king's outer court and you weren't invited to do so, you would either be killed or, if he was feeling especially merciful that day, he would extend the golden scepter, which is a way of extending his favor towards you, and he would spare your life. And so she's in this position where she's like, no man or woman, not even the queen, can just waltz into the king's presence and be like, hey, I got this thing you need to think about. And then she goes on and says this thing that, you know, seems somewhat puzzling. She says, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 30 days have passed. What that means What she's saying is that it has been 30 days since the conjugal services have been demanded of her. It's been 30 days since the king has said, I need you as my queen to meet my physical needs. And so what she's thinking right now is like, okay, maybe his infatuation with me has worn off. Maybe... He's finding other women to provide for his needs, and he hasn't even talked to me for 30 days. And she's saying, okay, so if, if I go to him, if I've fallen out of favor with him for some reason, what, what reason do I think that he's going to listen to me in the first place? If I did get the golden scepter extended to me, if he's fallen out of favor with me, and if I'm just, you know, one more woman in the line of women that he's had, what, what reason do I think that he's going to actually listen to my appeal in the first place? So she's in this position, and she's really in a no-win situation. She's in a no-win situation because if she goes to the king with her request, there's a chance she's going to die. If she doesn't go to the king with her request, there's a guarantee that she's going to die because she's Jewish. So she's in this position. There's no good option. There's no safe option. But she knows that in order to save her own life and the life of her people, there's only one decision that she can make. And it's, she, it's that she has to go into the king's presence. She had to risk her life by coming before the king to appeal the verdict. And that's exactly what she did. And so what we see is in Esther's life, we see Esther leverage her political influence to do the right thing, knowing that it may cost her life. As the queen, as someone who has been in the king's presence, she she has some form of influence in his life. Even if she is fallen out of favor with him, she still has a kind of influence that an ordinary common person would never have. And so Esther, she took that whatever political leverage, whatever political influence she had, and she leveraged that to do the right thing, knowing that it might cost her her life. At the end of chapter four, she tells uh, her uncle Mordecai, she says, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. She's willing to leverage what political influence she has in order to do the right thing, knowing that it might cost her her life. There's a lot about Esther's life that is not something we should emulate, as we heard about in the video. But this is an aspect of her life that we can look at and say, man, she did a really courageous thing. This is something, uh, an aspect of her life, that is worth uh, following her model and following her example of this kind of political courage. And so the question is, well, what does it look like for us to live with the same kind of political courage that we see in Esther? Let me suggest just a few ways this looks. First, we courageously leverage our political influence to do what we believe is right knowing that it may come at a significant cost. So like Esther, we recognize that like some of us have more, some of us have less, but we have some amount of political influence. And so we choose to courageously leverage that to do what we believe to be right. Knowing that there may be a significant cost with that. There may be a social cost. It's unlikely that, you know, I I don't mean this to, sound insulting, but none of us are probably important enough to get canceled, right? Like really, you know, typically people who are much more well-known get canceled. So I'm never going to get canceled because I'm nobody, right? So we might, we might not face getting canceled, but we may face, uh, we may face being labeled. You know, we may face being misunderstood We may face being sort of lumped in or associated with groups of people where it's like, no, I have nothing to do with those people. But when someone finds out, hey, this is, you know, these are some of your political convictions. These are how you engage in politics. And someone would say, oh, you're one of those people. And you can fill in, you know, the blank with whatever name you want to put on that. But it's like, oh, you're one of those people. And all of a sudden, socially, like, you are labeled, you are misunderstood. And you are, because of that, like the object of other people's anger. And so there's a significant cost that can come socially to us when we choose to do uh, the, do what we believe to be right. When we choose to leverage our political influence to do what we believe to be right. There's a cost that comes with that. Socially, there's a cost uh, vocationally and financially as well. You may uh, work for an organization that is trending one direction socially, culturally, and you hold a, a different set of values and you may be in a position where, where you you could be next in line to be like senior leadership promotion. And they say, yeah, but this person doesn't embody where we're headed as a company. You know, we can't have this person representing us in these kinds of ways. And so you may get passed over for a promotion. Uh, you, you, you know, your, your vocational ceiling might be lower because of your political convictions and the way that you engage in the realm of politics. And so there could be a significant vocational or financial cost to doing what you believe to be right politically. Uh, relationally, this is true as well. Just like in interpersonal relationships, whether it's with, you know, friends or neighbors or family or coworkers or people just in, you know, in, in your school or, or wherever, where, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage to go to someone You know, imagine, you know, someone and you're like, you know, this person has this set of political convictions. I don't land there. Uh, I want to go to this person and say, here's what I see. Can I, and and try and bring some like balance or try and uh, bring some perspective to a person where you're like, yeah, I think they're just like, they're just really missing it on this. And there's a kind of risk to that, right? Where you go to someone and you're like, okay, is our relationship going to be like damaged? Is this going to like blow up in my face? Am I going to lose friends? Am I going to have, like, division within my family now because uh, I spoke up and tried to uh, encourage someone in one direction, uh, politically speaking, right? And so there's all these different areas, and we could think of uh, other areas. There's these different areas of cost that are associated with leveraging our political influence to do what we believe is right. And so to follow Esther's example, we courageously leverage that influence, knowing that there's going to be a cost to it. Uh, the second way that this looks, I want to suggest this. Uh, we live courageously knowing courage is not enough. We live courageously knowing courage is not enough. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture that stuck in my mind. Uh, it first came to me from a scholar named N.T. Wright, and he used this uh, word picture, and it's really been helpful to me. He used it in a different area, but I think it, it applies well to this. And the image is uh, a surround sound system. So imagine in your den or, you know, in your living room, wherever you've got you got your TV and you've got a subwoofer and you've got two speakers in the back and you got two speakers in the front and you've got your surround sound system set up. And when you have all those speakers working together in unity and working in harmony, it's a wonderful experience, isn't it? You can like be immersed inside of a, uh, inside of a movie or a show in a way you couldn't otherwise. So it's wonderful when it's all working, but imagine what it would be like to sit down to watch a movie and you've got the subwoofer is like cranked all the way up. And basically none of the other speakers are on. One of the speakers in the back corner is like just above like a whisper. So you can, you, you can make out that people are talking, but basically all you hear is just like a muffled rumbling because it's just bass, right? You're like, well, that's not a very good experience. Or maybe think about it like this. You have, you know, the subwoofers turned almost all the way off. So the sound is, it's flat and it's thin and it just doesn't feel uh, very full. And you've got, you know, a couple of the speakers that are like at sort of a normal-ish level. And then one speaker, the one that's right behind your face, is like just cranked all the way up. And it's so loud that it's actually distorting the speaker, And it's like, it's shrill and it's distorted. And you're like, oh, this is a terrible experience, right? Because the speakers are out of balance. Now take this and apply this to uh, thinking about these, uh, these virtues that we've been talking about, right? The virtue of presence and humility and love and courage. All of those virtues need to be working together in our lives in a kind of harmony, in a kind of unity, and in a kind of balance. So imagine a person who is uh, who their their speakers, so to speak, of presence and courage are turned all the way up. Humility and love are way down here. It's not an enjoyable person to be around. Someone who's very present, who's very loud, who's very willing to share their ideas, and they're not afraid of losing friends, and they don't have love or, or humility. Those need to be in balance. Think of it the opposite way. you have got someone who's off the chart on love and humility and charity and very low on presence and courage. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nice, wonderful person. And, and I, I just don't really engage much, right? And so there's something that's, that's, that's missing, that's lacking from that person's uh, witness in the political realm. And so the point is that uh, all of these virtues, right, like we have to be, we have to continue to become people of courage, who are willing to do what we believe is right, no matter what the cost is, and we have to be people not just of courage, but people of, who are present, people who are filled with love, and people who are filled with humility. That's what brings balance to all of these, and they work together in a kind of unity. So yes, we have to be people who courageously leverage our political influence to do what we believe is right. And healthy engagement in the realm of politics requires more than just courage. It requires all these other virtues, and that's why we talk about these together, and we don't have a one-message series on cultivating virtue in the realm of politics. As we look at this book of Esther, what we see is that she's a model, right? There's aspects of her life that are, are worthy of emulation. She's a model. She's an example for us. But Esther is not the example. Esther is not the model. The best parts of Esther's life point forward to the life of Jesus. In Esther, we have a picture of a courageous yet deeply flawed person who was willing to give up her life so that other people could live. She was willing to lay down her life so that her people could live. And that points us forward to the person of Jesus who did that in a way that Esther never could. In the person of Jesus, we see God taking on human flesh and accompanying us in our humanity. And unlike Esther, he was not corrupted or tainted by sin. He wasn't a flawed person in the same way that she was. Unlike Esther, who was chosen by the king to be queen, in large part because of her physical outward beauty and attractiveness, unlike her, we read about the suffering servant in Isaiah, who we know is talking about Jesus, that he had no physical appearance. He had no physical you know, attributes that would cause people to just like fawn over him and be drawn towards him. So there's all these ways that Jesus is unlike Esther, but like Esther and in a way that she never could, Jesus gave up his life so that his people could live. And this is the essence. This is the, the, the central message of the gospel, that Jesus came to lay down his life so that we, his people, could live, So that we who are far from God, whose hearts are filled with darkness and sin, we could be forgiven, we could be made alive to the things of God. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave up his life so that his people could live. What this means is that when we trust Jesus, when we give our allegiance to him, our identity is now secured. Our identity in him is now set. Because our identity as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and neighbors and witnesses. We aren't given that identity because we did a lot of good things. We're given that identity because Jesus did those things on our behalf. And so our identity is already set. And in Jesus, God has given us every good thing that we need. And so what this means is that we can live courageously knowing that we essentially have nothing to lose. Right sure we may lose relationships we may lose social standing we may lose you know certain things absolutely but the most fundamental things that our hearts truly need has already been provided through what Jesus has done for us and so we don't have to live in a kind of fearfulness we can go out into the realm, of, into the political sphere, and, and courageously do what we believe to be right, even if it may cost us, because in Jesus, God has already uh, provided for those deepest needs of our heart. And so we can live courageously because of what Jesus has done for us, because the most important thing that we have been given can never be taken from us. As we come to the communion table this morning, we get to remember and celebrate uh, the good news that God sent his son to give his life so that his people could live. As we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, there is no clearer expression of the love of God for us. And the communion table is what the life of Esther points us forwards to. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a moment of silence for
0: confession and reflection And then we will come and celebrate Christ together.